Nava. And Jesse Romero. Jesus 911. Welcome to Jesus 911 Soul Patrol. My name is Jesse Romero, retired Los Angeles cop. This is where we talk about Catholic spiritual warfare Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Three retired Los Angeles cops. We get together and talk about uh, the natural and the supernatural, the preternatural. Today we have a special guest, a friend of mine named Adam Bly. Adam is uh, a very interesting fellow. <clears throat> Why do I say that? Well, <clears throat> he's worked in, in state in the Department of Corrections before as a psychological services specialist. I worked in the county jail also as well for several years in L.A., so... Uh, we we kind of know the same ambiance. I worked in the mentally ill offenders unit, and Adam, Adam is a he's a peritus, which is basically a Latin word for an expert on religious demonology and exorcism for the diocese of Pittsburgh. And he also trains priests in healing, deliverance, and exorcism on a national level. And he's also, I think, the only lay person that's an auxiliary member of the International Association of Exorcists. Adam, welcome to Jesus Nine One One, brother. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Jesse. Adam, let's get right to it. There's just uh, time goes by quick, so right now that I have a a, a, a paritis, I'd like to ask a couple of questions. Really, two things I want to uh, broach with you today. I want to talk a little bit about the Brownsville Road case, but before that, I want to ask you about the long form Saint Michael the Archangel prayer. It's it's, it's called the Exorcism of Leo the Thirteenth, uh, Saint Michael the Archangel prayer. Uh, I know Archbishop Vigano just asked priests to say that prayer a few weeks ago. Uh, my question to you is, uh, is that, uh, and I know Cardinal Ratzinger had something to say about the usage of that prayer. So the question is, is that prayer relegated only to priests? Or can it be prayed, say, by a serious Catholic privately for his personal devotion or prayer time? So uh, what's what's the scoop on that, Adam? Well, it depends on whether you're referring to the St. Michael prayer that was promulgated for the laity, that John Paul II asked that be said after every Mass, and, and that happened for uh, quite a few years, or whether you're talking about the minor exorcism that Leo, Pope Leo XIII wrote uh which is sometimes referred to as kind of the fuller St. Michael prayer or um, often just the Leonine exorcism. So you're probably referring, yeah, you're probably referring to the Leonine exorcism. So, and, and I'm flipping open the, the rubric for it right now because I have the exorcism right here. Okay. So just to be real clear, the St. Michael prayer, the basic prayer that, it, that most people know is fine and everybody can say that at any time that's the one for the laity that we that we learn and, and is often said at the end of mass got it the full what that comes from is the minor exorcism that leo wrote and what are the rules of that exorcism so oh, can't find my glasses all right so let me read you the rules which are still in place the following exorcism can be used by bishops as well as by priests who have this authorization from their ordinary. Now, that's that's the rule in red in the exorcism right. 
Got it. That, Got is, it. that has been in place and has never been removed. And in fact, there was a dubia, which is an official answer from Rome, from the Vatican, to a question. There, there can be a dubia on anything. Basically means an answer. It's an official answer. Uh, and I have a copy at my office. I don't have it here where they responded and said that rubric, the one I just read to you, which says it's only a, a bishop or a priest with authorization has never been what's the word is abrogated. And that just means removed or suppressed or, or, or a new rule took its place. So that's still in force. Now, the question, the question of using it privately is interesting. Um, you want to be careful about how people interpret that. So if I say, well, I'm going to go down to this place where I think this business is, is doing evil or, or there's a moral problem there, and I'm going to say it and because it's just me saying it, it's private. Basically, you want to be really careful with that. It would be one thing to say it at home <clears throat> when maybe I want to pray for the world or I want to pray about a particular issue. It's another thing to go down and do this in public. <clears throat> so I would say err on the side of don't use it at all. And here's why. Officially, you're not supposed to use it as a public action, meaning in public or, uh, you know, canonically that can mean a public action of the church, which is in, a, in, a, in an official setting like a mass or, or a funeral or something like that. <clears throat> you want to be really careful because there's a spiritual dimension in addition to the legal dimension. So we can say, well, there's there's the legalism of it. There's a rule there that the church put that said it's only a bishop or a priest and then only with authorization. But on the spiritual side of things, we want to be careful about, <clears throat> and excuse me, my throat's gummed up from coffee. We want to be careful about overstepping our bounds. Yeah, that makes and sense. What, what do I mean by that? Let, let me, Within, Adam, let me ask, let me say, it, would it be like, I'm just going to give you an analogy, like an earthly analogy. It would mm -hmm. be like giving a, uh, a soldier just right out of boot camp and you're giving him charge of, uh, let's say, you know, a tank or you're giving him charge of a 50 caliber machine gun and just the guy just uh, graduated <clears throat> from boot camp an hour ago. In other words, you're, you're, you're giving him a higher caliber weapon then he's actually ready or, or trained to use. Would that be a fair analogy? He's, he's being given that, a higher caliber weapon. Yeah, that's close, Jesse. I would say the other part of the analogy that would be helpful is you'd be sending that person into a hostile environment where combatants are going to fight back. And with minimal training, as you know from being a cop, Let's say somebody had minimal training and you want to send them into one of the worst areas on a call that sounds very serious, you know, discharge of weapons and things like that. You would probably say, let's make sure somebody experienced is going because there's there's going to be pushback. All right. So spiritually, spiritually, it's the same thing here. <clears throat> what makes it a little bit questionable and a little dangerous for laity is, number one, it's against the rules. And we know that God is all about being obedient, right? So you see many instances where obedience is super important to God. You see that in the Bible. You see how it plays out in the rules and religious orders, just all over the place. So you don't want to be disobedient. 
Yeah, obedience and authority are big in Scripture. Yeah, and the other thing is, within that prayer, there's imprecatory language. There's a direct command. And whenever you get into direct commands with demons, you have to be careful because the full authority was given to the 12 apostles by Jesus over the demonic. Okay? Some people argue that the 72 also had a full authority because they say we went out and we prayed against demons, etc., etc. But from priests that have studied this rigorously, the understanding is the full authority is with the bishops, who are the living apostles. They're the, one, now, what, they're the ones that are, they have the full power of exorcism in their diocese, correct? They just share it with a designated priest, but they're the ones that have the full power of exorcism, yeah. apostolic power, correct? Exactly. So, when a person who doesn't have that apostolic power lent to them by the bishop, when the bishop tells the priest, I give you permission to go do this, he's lending his power to the priest, his authority behind that action. So, how does that play out? I've been at hundreds and hundreds of solemn exorcisms over the years. I'm not bragging. It's just I'm saying this is not just a theory in my mind. When people have made a mistake and directly addressed a demon, either asked a question or given an order, like, hey, be quiet, sit down, anything, and they don't have apostolic authority, the demons are very happy when that happens. They will immediately turn and say, who are you? Something along those lines, basically like, who are you to tell me what to do? And they won't obey, which is the proof in the pudding. When the priest, with permission from the bishop to do the exorcism, says, sit down and be quiet, they sit down and close their mouth. That's the proof in the pudding. When a person who doesn't have apostolic authority tries to boss a demon around, the demon basically says, I'm not going to listen to you. Who do you think you are? Because... They don't have the apostolic authority lent to them. And we see this play out. Now, we're careful at exorcisms, and this rarely happens. Maybe somebody new is there, or a priest is helping us and, and praying along with us that isn't the exorcist, and maybe they make a mistake. Not a huge deal, but it highlights the fact that we have to be mindful of authority when we're dealing with these prayers, particularly when we give a demon a direct order. And that's included in this in the St. Michael exorcism, in the Leonine exorcism, in the full um, kind of prayer that the St. Michael prayer is extracted from. So these are all reasons why not only is it against the rules, but it's not wise. Because uh, it, makes it, yeah, it makes complete sense. Let me ask and, you a question along those lines. The analogy I've heard uh, is that it, it would be like, uh, saying this prayer, the Leonine prayer, without permission and stuff as a layperson, it's like sending a, you know, a high flash weapon into the air, and the enemy combatants say, like, when that high flash weapon, I mean, just it just it's, it starts a sonic boom, and the enemy says, "Whoa, who just deployed that?" And now you wake up, you're subject to retaliation because now they're saying, "Wow, who deployed that? Who is he?" I wonder if he had authority. Does he have permission? Let's check this out. So you're drawing attention to yourself because you just unleashed a high flash weapon. Is that a good analogy? Yes. Listening to Jesus 9, well, we got Adam Bly. We're going to be talking about next about the Brownsville Road case. Don't change that dial. Good stuff coming up.
1 Corinthians 13, 13, St. Paul says, So there abide faith, hope, and love, these three. According to St. Ignatius of Antioch, faith is the beginning, and love is the end. And God is the two of them brought into unity. Then comes everything else that makes up a Christian. May God grant that we may attain all the virtues that make for authentic followers of His Son. How does the baby eat? Can the baby hear me? How did the baby get in there? Wow, a pregnancy can sure generate a lot of questions. But what's important is that a baby is a baby, inside and out of the womb. Not just after birth, but nine months before, at conception. That's right, every baby is a miracle. Hello, my name is Marianne Kloharski. I'm the director of Pro-Life Across America. If you know someone who is pregnant or in need of alternatives or assistance or would like to support the work of Pro-Life Across America... ...to try to help save that person and get this creature out. You're not appointed to, to ask theological... But ...you could say you shouldn't do it, you can do it, but where the rubber meets the road is when people actually try to do these things. And, and what we see repeatedly, and, and you bump into this regularly, is Protestant ministers or lay people, uh, depending on the denomination, they may not even have ministers, will, will do these things. And when they, they stumble across a full-blown possession case, and that's, that's where it gets different. If it's a full-blown possession case, the, their prayers basically just agitate it and make it worse and then sometimes they get in trouble themselves. So, right? Exactly. Because when you challenge a demon, you consent to it pushing back in some way. Just like if you challenge a human, you consent to them hitting you back, right? If you don't challenge them, there's much less likely that's going to happen. So what we see in reality is when they stumble across a real full-blown case, they end up bringing it to the Catholics probably because of the movies and things they've heard over time. Everybody kind of associates the Catholics with doing full-blown exorcisms because we really have the formal book and all of that, though some of the Orthodox have, have some formal prayers too. So when I talked about this at Q Ideas, you know, and I said the same thing, I'm not trying to bash anybody, but this is what we see. I then had a number of ministers come up to me in the hallways during the conference privately and say thank you for saying that, one, one minister told me, I came across a real case and I tried to do the exorcism and I lost two years of my life. Meaning whatever happened to him derailed two years of his life. So there can be very serious consequences when we challenge these creatures directly. And what we see play out is the apostolic authority seems to really be important. Remember, Jesse, the demons don't care about your theologic arguments. They only care about God and God limiting them and enforcing his will on them. So you can argue with a demon at an exorcism and say, based on this scripture, you should do this. It's not going to obey you because of your intellectual argument. It's going to obey God. And if God has spoken through the church and said, Bishop has the authority, he's lent it to the priest, 
sit down and be quiet, the demon then sits down and gets quiet. It doesn't do that based on a, on an argument. It, so, it, so, it does that based on based on the authority structure that God has has laid out through his yeah. church, through Christ and his church and the apostles, correct? I mean, they, yeah. they're very legalistic, correct? They have to agree. This authority, they, they know the authority structure, and they know when you're outside your lane of authority, correct? Oh, exactly. So they, they love it if you step out outside of what you're allowed to do. So, for instance, if you were to ask a question uh, that's not related to helping that person, you've stepped outside of what the church has appointed you to do. You're appointed to try to help save that person and get this creature out. You're not appointed to, to ask theologic questions of a fallen angel. If you step into a selfish area and start exploiting the situation for your own interests or needs or wants, now you're not protected. And the demon doesn't have to obey you and it doesn't have to tell the truth. Got it. That, that's clear. That's about as clear as it gets. And so Mark 16, 17, that has to be understood in light of church authority. It just can't be a, a, a scripture that you take willy-nilly and say, got it. I'm going to go down, download chapter two and chapter three from the internet and go and pray over my nephew who's, uh, you know, uh, manifesting these preternatural, like, uh, preternatural you know, things. Uh, I'm going to go and take the chapter two and chapter three and pray over him because the Mark 16, 17 gives me the mandate to do so. Wrong, wrong. Mark well, 16, right. right. So not Mark only 16, 17 follows a protocol of authority from God to Christ to the church to the bishops, correct? Yeah, and the the additional layer, Jesse, is that the rubric, the rule in the book for chapter 2 and chapter 3, and what we mean by that is the solemn exorcism for people and the Leonine exorcism for places or objects, the rule says only a priest with permission from their bishop. So even if you think in your own mind, well, I should be able to do this, you're violating the rules of the church by using it. And so now you've stepped into the arena with a fallen angel in disobedience to the church. Scary. Wow. And, and, and this is, you know, Adam, I know a lot of people, well-intentioned people that cross this line, even in the Catholic Church, and I can tell right. you without getting into any detail, I can tell you the retaliation against their kids and their marriage has been horrendous. And they've admitted to me later, they're saying, you know what, I've been doing these deliverances by myself for many years and casting out demons and doing imprecatory prayers and I have paid a price. They've told me many. I mean, I'm talking about very big names in the Catholic Church. They're saying I backed off of this entirely because I realized from the field experience that I was outside of my authority and I paid a price for it. I'm sure you know, you know, cases as well, too. Hey, let's talk about the, the uh, terrifying case of the demon of Brownsville. There was a book written by Bob Kramer. He's the one that. Uh, you know, I guess he bought a house back in, in, in the early 80s, late late 80s, excuse me, a beautiful 105-year-old Victorian house in a quiet neighborhood, Brownsville Road in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. and, uh, apparently, this is a very peaceful, quiet town in Pennsylvania, and this family had a very peaceful life in the house, and all of a sudden, this house, this dream house turned into their nightmare by apparently a, a vicious demon or demons, uh, that were inhabiting that place, infesting that place. Adam, you know about it. You, you you know from living out there and from actually being part of the case. Give us an overview. What happened in this case? Is it resolved? 
What happened to Bob Kramer? Is he a good Catholic? Is he a Protestant? Uh, how did this house get infested by demons? You know, uh, the police questions, who, what, where, when, why, and how about the Brownsville movie? <clears throat> we don't have absolute certainty about how it started or, uh, you know, came to be demonically infested. And there's controversy about that. Some previous owners of the house before Bob have said they'd never had any problems there. Whereas some people have come to him and said that they spent some time living there and did have problems and that there was rumors of it in the neighborhood as being a historically haunted or troubled house. So it's controversial. Some of the research Bob had done, and he had a professional historian do it. Bob is a, a former military guy and a politician and a very rigorous person kind of in general. He's kind of that exacting military type, you know, kind of an intense and very specific kind of personality. So he found indications that there had been uh, possibly off-the-books abortions done around the turn of the century, which back in those days it was a big scandal if your daughter needed an abortion, and it was something that was sometimes done clandestinely so as not to ruin the, the name of the family. So he had found indications that a doctor was using the house kind of subletting some of the rooms of it to do this. Um, and some of the manifestations in the house seem to corroborate that. Um, I don't know if we want to get into some of those details. They might be a little disturbing for your for your listeners. Yeah, well, um, General. Yeah. I, I know but, one, uh, one of the demons that manifested actually uh, you know, gave the name of that Old Testament demon uh, that uh, uh, loves child sacrifice. That mm -hmm. was one of the manifestations, right? Correct. Yeah, and, and an odd thing, you know, we opened up the space underneath this, the main staircase in the house. Uh, we, we convinced Bob to open it up because there was some spiritual discernment that there was something important in there, and it had not been opened since the house was built. And um, like in the there we... Hmm? Like the basement? Was it like the basement? No, it was under the main staircase of the house. There was okay. this big kind of turning staircase. And we found a piece of paper in there, old and yellowed and brittle. Bob still has it um, in the soot laying in there from when the house was built that had the name of the family that built the house, which is verified by historic record, and some disturbing drawings on the back of it. And the family name was Malik, M-A-L-A-C-K. Uh, very close. Yeah, very, very close to the spelling of that. Now, not casting any, any negativity on that family at all. It was just a coincidence that um, was interesting. I'm not saying that family did anything bad or that they were bad people or demonic or associated with it. It was just an interesting coincidence. Um, you know, I want to correct maybe just really briefly a couple things from the article you sent me, because I think some writers exaggerate, you know, in order to make a sensational article. Um what looked like droplets of blood would appear on the walls the day after the house was blessed. So the priest would go through with holy water, bless the house, and sprinkle holy water. And usually the next day or within a couple days, there would be what looked like dried spatters of blood on the walls. We did have those sent away for analysis and verified that they were organic, but of an unknown um, definition. You're listening to Jesus 911, talking with Adam Bly, uh, an expert on uh, Catholic spiritual warfare. And we're talking about the case of the Brownsville Road. Don't turn that dial. Brownsville.